Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goal. Thank you, everyone, for joining today's episode of How Did They Do It? Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, Sayla Prack. Today, I am honored to be joined by Bill Hamall. Bill is a full-time multifamily investor, real estate broker, and founder of Hamall Real Estate. He is an expert at deal selection, apartment rehab, and value-add opportunities. Bill has a vast knowledge of deal flow, creative financing, and property management, ensuring a routine process of funding and managing multifamily apartments. He is passionate about sharing his successes and failures with other real estate investors. Outside of real estate space, Bill has an impressive background in Ironman and marathon races. So Bill, thank you so much for spending time with me today. How are you doing? Great, Sayla. Thank you so much for bringing me on the show. I appreciate it greatly. So, Bill, if you don't mind, can you share a little bit more about your background and how did you get started with real estate to begin with? Well, shoot, we're talking real estate. I thought we're talking Ironmans and marathons today. Well, we can get into that after this (laughs) as well. (laughs) I'm only kidding. But no, thank you for that. I've been a real estate investor since I was 21 years old. I was a bad college student working at a restaurant, read a real estate book, Nothing Down for the 90s by Robert Allen. And before I finished that book, I was off running, looking for that first piece of real estate. And I bought one very quickly. It was a mistake, but over the years, it turned into a great investment, fortunately. That's where operations come in. But slowly but surely, built a nice portfolio over many years, self-managed these properties along the way. In uh, 2019, I shifted my focus from self-managing my portfolio and pivoting my focus to acquiring larger multifamily properties, raising capital and diversifying into some Southern states. At this point, I built my portfolio all in the capital region of New York. Got it. Got it. And so you talking about like starting a single family portfolio right at the beginning and then shift into multifamily. Why did you make that selection or making that decision to shift to multifamily? That first book, I was practicing that as a reference guide. And we're talking about two family buildings, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, or the market that was in the, the Albany, New York area predominantly had a lot of two family housing. So I was off looking and two families seemed to make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Specifically, I was 21 years old and I also needed a place to live. So buying that two family, living in the first floor, renting out the second floor seemed to be a great place to start. Got it. Got it. And then you mentioned that uh, you transitioned to multifamily after. What year was that? That was probably my... 10th property. So I had been building up slowly but surely with the small properties. I was very comfortable with the two families, three families, and I was young, still learning along the way. Boy, do we learn along the way. You don't learn nearly as much in textbooks as you do being a landlord and operating your assets. But I stumbled into an opportunity at an auction one day, and I didn't expect to buy this property. 
I was just excited to be a real estate investor, sitting on a front lawn, waiting for an auction. And I'm like, all right, this will be cool. Mm-hmm. And no one was bidding on this property. It was part multifamily, part office space. And it got to a point where if no one else is going to bid, I'll throw out a low bid. And we went back and forth a few times with a couple other low bids. And I won that auction. And that was pivotal in my business. Oh, that's awesome. And as of today, what does your portfolio look like? You mentioned about like all multifamily, right, in New York? Yeah, New York, outside St. Petersburg in Florida, Gainesville, Florida, and Knoxville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. In uh, 2019, 2020, once I pivoted away from managing my portfolio, mostly small, medium-sized properties. So we liquidated them. Did a lot of 1031 exchanges. Mm-hmm. A lot of the exchange work happened in Florida and in our area of New York. And at that point, I just wanted to focus on a portfolio with larger multifamily, and that's what it looks like today. If you don't mind, if you can share, what is your company's asset under management now? Like how many doors and how many units? 350 doors. 40 million, roughly. That's awesome. And coming from a full-on, hands-on experience as a landlord yourself, right, from a single-family home to a multi-family. So basically, you are well-versed with the operation of the entire multi-family space. So, do you have any tips for our listeners who are self-managing themselves? Like, what are the things that you are looking out for and making sure that you're managing your properties the correct way? Wow, geez, I would say. Strictly focusing on the key performance indicators that run our properties, making sure our collections are good. We're keeping up with our lease renewals. We're keeping up with apartment turnovers, and most importantly, I say most importantly because early in my career, all I cared about was keeping apartments full and collecting rent. But as I became A bit more mature, a bit more professional. I realize this is a business, and we have to provide as good of a customer service as possible. Mm-hmm. So, one of those main key performance indicators is making sure that we're keeping up on the tenant service. Got it, got it. And you also mentioned earlier that you start uh, like having investors on your deals, right? So basically, you also raising capital to acquire larger properties in today's market, like the fourth quarters of 2023. What do you see when raising capital from investor? What are some of the questions or concerns that you know get from your investors? Well, these days, the big question is: Are you still comfortable buying with interest rates the way that they are? And are you still interested in buying in Florida because there's hurricanes? <laughs> so yeah, you get interesting questions like that from time to time. And 90% of my career, I was buying with interest rates between five and a half to seven percent. So I've always approached deal selection fairly cautiously. I was very young. My parents were very clear to tell me. What types of risks I was taking? I'm glad that I didn't listen to them. I think that's a commonality with people getting into real estate. People who love them, care for them, who don't have any background in real estate, want to mm-hmm. protect you and tell you don't do it. So I did do it. I, nothing was going to stop me, but I did have a habit right off the bat to do things extremely cautiously. 
So Mm -hmm. when I approached a deal, it had to be a good deal. That was extremely important. So there's a lot of like operators out there and doing a lot of deals, right? And some I can see like doing like two deals a month or something like that. So that obviously like the definition of a good deal or a great deal, you know, like different from operators to operators. So in your opinion, Bill, what make it a great deal for you? Well, a great deal early on, it was I had to be able to work out a no money down scenario on any deal. Mm-hmm. But it had to fit my strict buying criteria. That was the challenge because, as we know, or as I figured out after the first property I bought, location, location, location. Yes, that first book told me that, but I was just so far ahead of myself. I wasn't familiar enough with this city neighborhood to understand the challenges in front of this two-family property that I purchased. But going forward from there... My buying criteria was clear. I had to have a great location, a good quality building with decent floor plans. And that Mm -hmm. evolved more and more over the years. But if I'm able to finance 100% of that deal, typically, I just rinsed and repeated many, many times, I would get a loan from the bank. I would have a few private lenders that would loan me the down payment money, closing cost money. And I was in for no money down. The key to that is it's got to be a good property that fits my buying criteria, but the rents have to outweigh the expenses. Mm -hmm. If I check all those boxes, I've got a deal. Got it. Got it. And Bills, you also a real estate broker yourself, right? And in today's market, what advice do you have for investors to go out there and find your good deals, right? And what are some of the things that you would advise them to build a great relationship with a broker? Yeah, it boy has the market changed over the years. I lived off of the multiple listing service. I would pluck foreclosure properties that that were very inexpensive in good locations. I just had to put some work in them. And the deal created instant equity when we finally rented that property and refinanced. So that's why I became a broker early in my career, because I wanted to have control of my deal flow Mm -hmm. through the multiple listing service. But these days, the multiple listing service has been very thin over the past many years. And direct-to-seller techniques, off-market properties tend to be the way to go. That's how I've gotten many deals. But I have had one broker locally, a broker friend, who was handling the direct-to-seller. So yes, he was a broker, but he worked the phone very, very well, had a great database of sellers that he already had a relationship with. And yes, that's another great way to create deal flow. So just like any business, follow-up is key. So if you're in an area and you have your top 10 highest producing brokers that sell multifamily real estate, you have to let them know you're out here, you are looking for a specific asset, and follow up with them once every three or four weeks. Take them for coffee, take them for lunch, treat them well. We're all human because we want to be on the top of that broker's list. A deal Mm -hmm. comes up that fits our criteria. You need to get that phone call. 
My that makes sense. That's a really great tips right there from an experienced brokers like yourself. We also really appreciate on that. So I think there'll be uh, kind of cut off a little bit. So we were talking about raising capital. So like we were talking about the investors' concerns and what about like general partners or an operator who are doing the capital raising to fund their deal? Why right? do you have any tips for them, especially in current environment, in order to be more successful in raising capital early in your career? Start that database. Start that database in your customer relationship management system as well as you can. Build that database because as the years go by, you really need to retain those relationships from when you started all the way through your career. Because if you choose to raise capital at any point, those are your people that you've already created a relationship with. Mm-hmm. And that's how I started raising capital three or four years ago. It was just going to the database from people, business acquaintance, friends, families that I knew. And that's how I got started. Fortunately, I've been taking advantage of masterminds and different mentorship groups over the last three or four years. So I've been able to really sharpen up my capital raising system, mm-hmm. creating funnels So I can expand the database, nurture relationships with new people in the database, because on a weekly basis, monthly basis, we need to stay in touch with these people so they understand that we're still looking for deals. They need to understand what we're working on, our success on certain deals. Some challenges. We're all human. It's not all, what do they say, unicorns and rainbows. So we share all these business experience with our database and they develop this know, like, and trust. So when we do have a deal that comes up, the odds of them investing in the deal are much greater. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Got it. And when you have that database, right, what type of communication that you usually have with your investors? I've been doing a weekly email, and that's worked well for me. Originally, I was doing a monthly newsletter. We would miss a month here and there because we're so busy doing other things. But it came a point where if I'm raising capital, we have to do it correctly, which means you've got to commit to it and be consistent. So I made my weekly email, well, actually my monthly newsletter into a weekly email. I shortened it quite a bit. So it's a quick read and it's just a contact point mm-hmm. on a weekly basis, which has worked very well for me. 
Got it, got it. And Bill, I want to ask you, like in the current environment, right? So, what have you done so far in order to protect investors, like foreign and that invested in your properties? What are some of the things that you do in order to safeguard their their fund? Well, I've been doing the same deal template for years, even before I became a syndicator. We focused on deals that had some level of distress. So mm-hmm. I discussed early on where I was buying single-family, two-family, three-family foreclosures-type properties that have financial distress. They also typically have physical distress. So you're able to get a good deal because you're taking on a problem. Mm-hmm. And now we're solving a problem, which is fixing a building up. And also renting it at market rate. And once you're done with a building like that, you've created instant equity and instant cash flow. So when I'm buying large multifamily over the last three to four years, it was specifically rental distress type properties. What I mean by that is we've all seen, everybody's seen, including tenants, where it is very clear to everybody that rents have absolutely increased amazingly. I've never seen rents increase over a short period of time like we've had. So we focus on finding sellers that may have owned the property for a good period of time. They've enjoyed long-term tenancy And they may have let some of the cosmetic items on their property go a little bit. So we're looking for, as all your listeners are familiar with, those Mm value-add, massive rent growth deals. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that protects investors drastically based on any uncertainty in the future, because I think it's fair to say that We're going to continue to have some uncertainty in the near future. And we're buying deals that have a lot of what we say meat on the bone, a lot of rent growth. And it's not expecting continued rent increases like year over year rent increases. We're taking rents that are $1,000 a month, but the current market is $1,500. So there's a lot of insulation there. If we get some uncertainty and we don't hit our $1,500 price point, we're still going to be very well insulated if we hit $1,300, $1,400. So our deals are very safe that way. Got it. And Bill, I know you don't have the crystal ball, but from your experience as a broker and also as an apartment owner yourself, what do you see the market would look like for the multifamily space in 2024? 2024 is going to be, well, who am I kidding? I'm saying it so definitively. In my humble opinion, 2024 is going to be as slow as 2023. I think that we are all still waiting for whatever is going to happen. I think that there's a lot of indicators out there that show that there is going to be continued contraction. Mm -hmm. And when everything settles down at some point, as we talked before the episode, here we are, properties are still selling over asking price with interest rates at 7%. How is this occurring? And you had mentioned, well, employment is still great. 
So that's the one major indicator here that still gives us confidence. But as, which I think unemployment is going to increase as businesses feel some pressure from the challenges with interest rate hikes over the past 15 months, at some point, tenants will not be able to pay these exorbitant rents. And owners, many owners have purchased or refinanced over the last three or four years at historically low interest rates, which doesn't give them any massive motivation to sell. So the opportunity I think a lot of us are hoping for are unfortunately the investors that may have purchased using bridge loans and similar loans as that may be coming up for maturity that they're not going to be able to refinance. You know, that's going to force some selling. Got it, got it. And do you agree your message to the uh, to the buyers, right? So just be patient, like looking at the market and be true to your underwriting and your numbers. And then if there's a good opportunities, like still go ahead and still buy it. And then for the sellers at the same way, you know, like you see a great offers with a great buyers with good credibility, like don't wait, you might as well just sell, right? So what's your thought on that? Geez, everyone's different. But but yeah. personally, I, I don't buy any differently than I did from early in my career. I Fortunately, I was buying very cautiously from the beginning. And I'm still a buyer now, but I'm going to be very cautious. The deal still has to underwrite properly. We still have to be a bit more cautious than I was three years ago. And I think that's worked for me in any market. I'm never a big fan of being super aggressive, even on upswings. Mm -hmm. I don't like to buy saying, hey, the market's hot. We're buying at a million dollars and it's going to be a million one next year. I have to buy in current times, not what we're, we're hoping for in a year or two. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And Bill, so you do Ironmans and marathon races for as your hobby. So I know marathon, but I don't know anything about Ironman. So I'm pretty sure our listeners, some of our listeners know what an Ironman is. But can you educate me? What, what's an Ironman? An Ironman is a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride and a 26.2 mile run. Oh, wow. So how many miles is that? It's like over 100 miles, close It's to 200. 140.3. Wow. So when you're, you're, when you're driving down the road and you see someone has a sticker that says 140.3, that's them saying, hey, I'm an Ironman. Wow. What's the advantage of being an Ironman? It's like, how do you train for that? That's a lot of miles. Yeah, it's just a lot of volume. So it's good because you get to mix up your training, meaning running takes a lot of impact on your legs. Mm -hmm. Cycling doesn't have any impact at all. Swimming doesn't either. So they all give you different benefits. So it's very nice to be able to do all three. And I think they all have an added benefit for you health-wise. On the other end of the spectrum, we train about 12 to 15 hours a week. So then I come to the conclusion that this is solely a challenge. And life's all about challenges, at least for me. 
but I, I start to question training 15 hours a week. I'm not sure how healthy that really is. Right, right. Wow, that's an amazing sport. It seems like a very challenging sport for possibly 99% of the population. <laughs> Only the 1% that actually can do it and do it and make it happen. And one of those 1%. So congratulations on that, Bill. No, I thank you so much. It's fun. Just no different than real estate and getting into so many different properties and partnerships. It's all a challenge. Yep. And same thing with our hobbies. Awesome, Bill. So thank you so much for spending time with me today it's on your busy day. And if our listener wanted to find out more about you, your company, and wanted to invest with you, where can they go? They can go to collectingrealestate.com. That is my private equity company. We'll show you what we're doing, what type of deals we're doing over the last two or three years. And they can also get a few resources there on that website. Awesome, Bill. Thank you so much again for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.